I wanted to say a welcome again, and also to welcome those of you who are tuning in um, via the live stream at home. It's, it's good to be able to worship together. Today I want to invite you to open up your Bibles to the 130th Psalm. We're going to be in Psalm 130. And just before we get into that, I just wanted to mention, by the way, that we... Um, Obviously, this, this year has been uh, strange in the fact that the, the normal rhythms of church life have been disturbed, and a lot of the things that we ordinarily do have been paused. And I think about our monthly prayer meetings and also our weekends away and these kinds of things. But the home groups, our life groups, which really is the kind of heartbeat of community in the church life, have sought to continue meeting online. And um, I wanted to remind you, friends, that if you have... Um, not yet part of a group, can I encourage you to contact us and let us know? Um, we would love to invite you to one of these groups. And um, it's, it is, really is a life-changing experience to not only be part of a church in the sense of the bigger gathering and to uh, worship with God's people on Sunday, but also to journey with people in the day-to-day and get to know a deep, uh, people in a deeper way through friendship and openness and um, Whether you're not a believer and you're sort of exploring Christianity or whether you are a Christian, either way, these are open to you and you're very, very welcome to join and I want to encourage you to do so. And of course, in the weeks ahead, we're anticipating that increasing levels of freedom and liberty will come so that what has been um, relatively inferior through meeting online will give way to something which is much more superior as we're able to gather again in person outside and then in homes and around food together. So now is an excellent time to join and to reconnect. If you've distanced yourself and drifted away or if you've never been part of a group, please can I encourage you to be part of one and to make sure that that's a priority. I want to read to you Psalm 130. It is one of this these psalms that are part of a series of psalms called the Psalms of Ascent or of Going Up. Um, of going up to Jerusalem really is the, the understanding, the meaning behind this, the, this, grouping, this, this grouping of psalms. So let's read the 130th psalm. It says, A Song of Ascents. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning, more than watchmen wait for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities." Now, let me remind you then what we're doing as we're considering these Psalms of Ascent. I am beginning with the assumption, the belief, really a certainty, that being apart as uh, humans causes us to develop certain maladies. And this is true uh, spiritually, of course, and therefore there's no way in which us being um, distanced from one one another as we have during the course of this year could mean that we are not changed in some way individually and that our spiritual walk isn't affected in some way. And I could use here an analogy of, uh, many of you have experienced perhaps for the first time the shift to working from home if you've had the privilege of continuing in work throughout this year and you've been working from home. 
And uh, the effect of that has been interesting, right? And uh, I've talked with a number of you who've explained the kinds of things that you've experienced and encountered working from home for the first time with everybody um, engaging with each other online. And uh, of course, some of the things are that some people work uh, too much. There's constant meetings and so on. Some people work too little. You're never quite sure, are you, whether your colleagues are pulling their weight and maybe whether you are pulling your weight. And um, another aspect of this is that there's a temptation. You know, there's something about going to work, isn't there, that forces you into certain rhythms that are healthy for you. There's a temptation maybe if you're working from home to let things slide a little bit. Maybe you put on a few pounds. Maybe you're content to wear your pajamas all day and just put on a shirt or blouse for the Zoom calls. And um, judging by some of the hairstyles, I can see that some of you have let yourself go um, during the course of this year. And of course, we know that our relationships are affected as well. Um, I know a few of you have started jobs this year and have never even met your colleagues, which is a very strange thing. And even if you've known your colleagues for years, it's not the same, is it? You don't have the same level of engagement or fun together as you might ordinarily have in the course of your, of your, your time at work. And what's needed, of course, is a regathering. People come back together. All of these things are ironed out. The person who works too much maybe tones it down. The person who works too little maybe is sort of brought up by the peer pressure of being together. Everyone licks themselves into shape. They start dressing properly. They sort their hair out. And the relationships are fixed, right? So all these things begin to be remedied when we are together. There's something very powerful about humans in society and in community. And this is no less true um, for believers and for our experience of walking with God, our spiritual lives, that when we are scattered and apart, certain maladies develop and there can be a kind of laziness or lethargy that sets in spiritually or the opposite, a kind of spiritual OCD where some people get tormented by um, a kind of inadequacies and these kinds of things or all kinds of maladies, de- maladies develop. And these Psalms, because they were Psalms that called God's people together, to the experience of worshipping him as one people during these festal gatherings that would take place periodic th- periodically through the year. The maladies that had developed in the intervening times, the weeks and months in between, would be ironed out and remedied um, through the singing of songs together that remind them of the truth of God's grace and of the need to come before him in fresh ways and understand his vision and his mission for the world. Now this particular psalm that we're, get, that we're looking at today then deals with the issue of guilt and I know that in, in raising the issue of guilt, even from the outset, there are going to be immediately different reactions in the room. That there are some of us who are conscious straight away of the reality of guilt in your day-to-day life. Perhaps it's even a challenge to come to church as you have done today because of the sense of, of accusation or condemnation. And I don't find this in any way surprising. I think the reality is that sin in our lives thrives in darkness and us being separated is a form of darkness. It's isolation, isn't it? Which is a form of darkness. And uh, sin is like a fungus, you know, like the fungus between your toes or the mushrooms on the forest floor. They love the dark. And uh, the reality is that many of you are conscious of this in your lives. But of course, the opposite is also true. That as soon as you start to speak about guilt, There's a reaction and a rebellion against that within some of you where you say, well, here we go again. This is a problem with Christians. Maybe you're not a Christian. You say, this is the problem with religious people. You 
You're always making us feel bad. You, you invent a God and then as a consequence of this God and his moral standards that you've invented, we now then fall short and we feel guilty all the time. And it's just a system of control and manipulation and all these kinds of things. Now, I'm aware that a lot of people these days think and feel that way. I would only caution to say the Bible has it the other way around. Let me tell you that the the scriptures tell us that God speaks to us in in a few different ways, even if you're not someone who follows Christ, who's not a believer. God speaks to us in his creation. The heavens declare the glory of God, the Bible says. He speaks to us primarily through his word, through the scriptures. But there is another way the Bible tells us that God speaks, and that is through the voice of conscience, that God has created you in such a way that your conscience resonates with the law of God that he's built into his creation, which of course is a reality everyone understands and knows in the sense that all of us do have a conscience. It's a very difficult phenomenon to explain if you take God out of the picture. And the Bible says, no, we can reason from our moral sensibilities to a certainty that there has to be a God over us who made us and, and, and has given us his law, as it were, his righteous decree. And so it's not the fact that we create God and then feel guilt. It's rather that our guilt and the awareness of that guilt that everyone experiences leads us then back to the reality of the God who made us. Now, I want to start then by asking the question, what do I mean by guilt? And I want you to listen carefully here because I'll make a distinction here that's going to be crucial for everything I'm about to say. When we speak about guilt, we're really talking about two slightly different things. On the one hand, we're speaking about psychological guilt, the experience, the subjective awareness of a guilty conscience, which can be anything from just a flush of the cheeks when a memory of something you said or have done in the past comes to mind, all the way through to a deep sense of wretchedness. And all of us perhaps have been in moments like that in our lives. And some people live in a constant awareness of that. But psychological guilt is one element of this. Your awareness of guiltiness. The other element of this is objective guilt. Which is more like a cold, emotionless verdict about you. The truth of whether you are guilty or not as rendered by an objective and impartial judge. And obviously, when you begin to think about the two two definitions of guilt that I've just given you, the psychological guilt and the objective guilt, we're aware that there are different ways in which we can experience both of these realities, that it's possible to have one and not the other. I know this as a parent, that we're all wired differently. I have one child who... All you need to do is give a certain look and this child will immediately feel conscience-stricken if they're doing something wrong. I have another child, not so much. And, you know, I'll be like, don't eat the sand. And this child will look me in the eye and be like, what sand? You mean this sand? (laughs) Eating the sand right in front of me. And you think this is what we're like as humans. We're wired internally. We're default Our default mode is very different. Some of us are highly tuned to feel 
conviction and guilt about issues and other, others of us less so. And I want to explore some of these dimensions of guilt and really understanding, of course, that when we, when we consider it through the lens of psychological and objective guilt, there's basically four different categories that you can fall into. Having both, having neither, having this one or having this one. And I want to explore each of these with you. I want to begin by addressing the condition in which you can be aware that you're guilty in an objective sense. Like you, don't, you wouldn't claim to be perfect. But you lack a sense of conviction a sense of guiltiness, a sense of psychological guilt about the things that you do that you actually know are wrong. And many people find themselves in that situation, I think. I want to explore this. I think we'll spend most of our time on this one. Your first reaction on reading a psalm like this is to think that the psalmist is a little bit extreme. You know, you maybe even pity him. You think it's a little bit over the top, the way he speaks. He says, out of the depths I cry to you. And you think, I, I just don't identify with the way he's feeling, the way he's expressing his state before God. And it's not that you're necessarily claiming perfection, but you don't feel that pressing urgency to deal with the reality of sin in your life for whatever reason. Now, the psalm definitely speaks to that kind of person. You see in verse 3 how he says, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Which I could paraphrase for you and say, what he's saying is this. God, if you, if you were to judge every person alive, if we all were to stand before your judgment seat, not a single one of us could remain standing there innocent before you. Every one of us is guilty. It's, what, it's a truth that's reiterated throughout the Bible, but I think particularly in Paul's great letter to the Romans, how he builds this case about the guiltiness of humankind and our need of redemption through Christ. And he puts it so vividly in, in Romans 3 when he says that everyone, he says Jews and Greeks, which is just his way of saying everyone on planet earth, Jews and Gentiles, everyone, he says, are under sin. It says, as it's written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. So we agree together. This is so fundamental to the Christian faith. We agree together that when measured against the standards that, that are God's standards, none of us are perfect. We know this, right? So then it raises the question, how is it possible that you can do wrong in life, even on a daily or momentary basis, and yet not feel stricken, and not feel convicted, not feel guilty. And I think there are a number of reasons why this might be the case, and I want to suggest some to you. One is that the Bible teaches us that your conscience can become dulled. Now, all of us understand how this works. You might feel guilty the first time you do something, much less so the hundredth time. And the language that the scriptures use in one place is that your conscience can become seared. Paul talks about liars whose consciences are seared. You know what searing is? You do it when you buy a beautiful piece of steak. You sear it in the pan. You, you expose it to high heat and you seal the edge of the meat. It's seared. And he says your conscience can be seared. Which is to say, just as when you burn yourself, you ever had this, the experience of burning yourself badly? 
What happens? Your sensation stops, whether temporarily or permanently. You might lose feeling in that place where you are burned or whether you ha- where you have a scar. And Paul speaks about this. I think it's a vivid analogy of what can happen to the conscience of, of people when we continually trample over that conscience and ignore it. Eventually, your conscience stops being a noticeable feature in your life. And it's a little bit like the condition that we call leprosy. You know what leprosy is? Leprosy is the absence of pain. That's what leprosy is. The absence of pain. You think that sounds wonderful. Imagine going through life without experiencing pain. But actually it's deadly because eventually what happens, you, you, know, you, you grab a hot pan, you burn yourself and you're not even conscious of it until later you look and see the blistering all over your hand. You do that enough times, you begin to lose digits, fingers, and even hands, limbs. You tread on a nail, you're not aware of it. And what happens, you end up with an infection in your blood, septicemia, and you're dead within days. You see how pain is crucial to life, isn't it? Pain is crucial to our survival. And the same is true, I'm using this as an analogy here. This is true of conscience. Your conscience, the scriptures say, can be seared so that you no longer begin to recoil. And just as the leper inflicts harm on themselves unwittingly, so it is with sin. When your conscience no longer becomes a powerful force in your life to say stop, you begin to do things which ultimately harm you, maim you, hurt you. Your conscience can be dulled. Another feature here, another explanation is that our minds can rationalize in such a way that the mind overwhelms the conscience and smothers it. The scriptures talk here about the way that we can offer excuses and reasons and rationalizations which enable us to justify ourselves even when we're doing things we know are wrong. In Paul's letter to the Romans again, he talks about this. He says that when Gentiles, and he's speaking about people who were not... um, you know, Jewish who didn't have the law, he says, when they, those who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires. In other words, when we go around and we're, we're, we know that we shouldn't murder and we shouldn't steal and these kinds of things, he says they are a law to themselves even though they don't have the law. So we don't have the law of God, but we still know what right and wrong is. He says they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. This is the, the God speaking to the conscience. While their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. That statement perfectly summarizes the human condition. Our conflicting thoughts accuse, make you feel guilty, or excuse, which means that your mind can be like a little lawyer, advocating for you, justifying you, offering excuses and rationalizations that ultimately can smother the voice, smother the voice of conscience within your heart so you no longer listen to your conscience. All of us will have experienced this as an example here, when you walk past someone begging in the street. You know how it is. The first thing you feel when you see someone begging in the street is a pang of conscience. The second thing is the mind jumps in and begins to wrestle with the conscience, to offer rationalizations and excuses. Now, I know it's a complex issue, but it goes to show, doesn't it? We all have experienced that. The pang of conscience and then the rationalizations, oh, I don't need to do anything. And how your, your mind smothers it. Our minds do this in all kinds of ways. Another way we do it is through using euphemisms to, build, to minimize 
our own. So for example, instead of speaking about committing adultery, these days we use the language of having an affair. Now an affair is a neutral word. You go about your affairs, you do your business affairs. Or instead of speaking about fornication, we talk about hookups. Or instead of speaking about serial adultery, we now label someone a sex addict, which somehow suddenly they've turned from being someone who does wrong into someone who's actually a victim and is needing therapy instead of castration. (laughs) So this is what we do. The mind overwhelms the conscience, crushes it, smothers it, squashes it. I also think this can happen just because of the effect of being in the crowd. You know, when we were kids, we called this peer pressure, but it, it doesn't diminish as you get older. It's just that now we measure ourselves against the benchmark of society at large. And things that are potentially unthinkable in isolation and away from society suddenly become doable when everyone's doing them. Think about, just as a way, way of illustration, you ever thought about what a strange thing it is that humans love to dance? You know, contort our bodies in all kinds of ways. You'd love to see me dance, wouldn't you, right now? But you know how strange it is when you see a crowd of humans dancing together, and it provides unbelievable entertainment and joy, doesn't it? But you take one human out of the crowd and put them on a normal street in the middle of London, in the middle of the day, listening to their music. And this occasionally happens, doesn't it? You walk down the street, someone's singing and dancing along to their, the, either the soundtrack in their head or through their headphones. And what is, it's very odd, isn't it, when you see someone doing this on their own. You think they're weird, but then you put them back in the context of the crowd and it's suddenly normal again. And this is the same with conscience and with sin. Things that you might think are wrong when you're when you're kind of looking at it rationally in the cold light of day on your own, when everyone's doing stuff, your conscience gets smaller and smaller and smaller, quieter and quieter and quieter until eventually you can't even hear it above the noise of the society in which we live. This is obviously true because societies constantly shift their notions of what is appropriate and inappropriate and we move like lemmings with the crowd. Now, friends, what I'm trying to provoke you to see is that should you read a psalm like this and you meet, your immediate reaction is, well, I don't recognize this because I don't feel these pangs of conscience. I want to provoke you and ask you the question, can you really trust yourself in that sense? Can you trust the voice of your own conscience? This is where In the Christian vision of things, the word of God and the truth of God has to be brought to bear in your situation. Your feelings are not always an accurate judge of whether you need to get right before God. And I know that I could be speaking to some of you who are not Christian, who maybe maybe you just don't feel the urgency. My encouragement to you is you must be aware that you will stand before God one day. But I also know from the years of experience in pastoral ministry that Christians can find themselves in this kind of a situation where what once seemed horrific to them now seems normal. And you've walked so far down the road of doing something which you know is wrong, that you no longer feel to be wrong. You can do it easily. Friend, come home. 
Come to God in repentance. Come and get right with Christ. Now, I want to show you a second type of person. There are those who can both feel the reality of psychological guilt and also be aware of the objective reality of guilt in your life. We talked about the one who has objective guilt but doesn't feel it, and now I'm talking about someone who has both. Now, obviously, this is the condition of the psalmist when he's writing this song. Out of the depths, I cry to you, O Lord, O Lord, hear my voice. We don't know what he's done. He doesn't tell us what he's done. Some of the psalms of repentance give us context, like when David committed adultery with Bathsheba. This one doesn't give us any such context. We just know that he's done something wrong that makes him feel wretched in this way. Now, this reality of the guilty conscience is an explanation for so much misery in the world in which we live. We are moral beings. Which means that you don't only need sleep and relationships and nutrients to be healthy and happy. We also have a longing for righteousness and purity and holiness. And there's a, there's a part of us which despises pollution and the dirtiness and the wickedness of sin, especially when it clings to us. And I believe even in a world that is increasingly secular, that this hasn't left us. And I think this explains so much of the misery that we see in ourselves and around us in the world in which we live. Why? Why is that the case even when, even when the things we've done might not have caused any harm? Maybe no one even knows. And still we can feel this wretchedness. And the Psalms really help us to understand this reality. There's a couple of things which explain it here, even just in these first two verses of this Psalm. One is the reality of this internal torment. The other is being estranged from God. This internal torment it's described perhaps in a little bit more detail in the 38th Psalm. Here in Psalm 130, he just says, out of the depths I cry to you. In Psalm 38, he explains this at more at length. He says, there is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There's no health in my bones. You know, he's talking about a sickness that gets right down into, into his bones. Because of my sin, he says. For my iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden. They're too heavy for me. My wounds stink and fester because of my foolishness. In the ancient world, when you had no antibiotics, a wound, a surface wound, you, know, you cut yourself on a piece of farm equipment or whatever, might go gangrenous and begin to smell rotten. Ooh. You could walk into a room and know that someone's about to lose a limb. He says, I'm utterly bowed down and prostrate all the day I go about mourning. My sides are filled with burning. There's no soundness in my flesh. I'm feeble and crushed. I groan because of the tumult of my heart. Oh Lord, all my longing is before you. My sighing is not hidden from you. My heart throbs. My strength fails me. And the light of my eyes, it also has gone from me. We've all met someone, haven't we, for whom the light of their eyes has gone out. The sparkle, the joy of innocence of childhood has given way to becoming leathery and heavy laden with 
the darkness of sin and a life that's been lived in all kinds of depravity. Now, I know that if you were to have a conversation with someone like this psalmist, perhaps sit down and ask what's going on and this kind of descriptions were being brought to light, you might immediately say, okay, this person is clinically depressed. And that may be true. And so quickly we, we want to medicalize things and offer medication to lift someone out of that darkness. But what if so much of the darkness that we see in ourselves or around us in the world is not just due to physiology, the chemical imbalances in the brain? What if for many people, and I'm not saying all, but what if for many people that misery, that heaviness, that darkness, that loss of light in the eyes that the Psalms describe is just this, the biblical diagnosis that out of the depths I cry. Not only is this an internal thing though, it's also an awareness of a distance from the God who made you. You see how he's pleading with God to hear. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord, O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. Why does he repeatedly say, God, I want you to hear me? Because obviously he feels, there's a sense in which he feels distant from God as he's praying. And this makes perfect sense to me. You know this in your relationships with friends and family. That where disagreement comes in or where hurt comes in, you feel distant immediately, don't you? You can be under the same roof with a spouse or a flatmate or a family member. And if an offense has crept in, you can feel distant from one another, right? Even if you're physically proximate. The same is true spiritually. How much misery in the world could be explained if we understood that our fundamental problem is so often rooted in this sense of depravity, of guilt, of conscience. There is a person then who feels both objectively guilty and psychologically guilty, knows they've done wrong and feels it. Now this brings me to a third type of person, and I want to just pair this here, that there is a person who can feel heavy laden, psychologically guilty, even if they haven't done wrong in a particular Sense. I'm not saying they're perfect, of course not. But what we're talking about here is a phenomenon in which it's possible for us to have a conscience which is actually out of line with reality. And a couple of reasons for that. One is that walk through life heavy laden with false guilt. Conscience, this God-given faculty that you have, this, 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 sense, this sixth sense, if we can put it like that, that you have, is a vulnerable faculty because it can be manipulated and distorted and taken advantage of. And there are all kinds of situations in which that can happen in our lives. It's a little bit like a medical condition called hyperesthesia, where a certain one of your senses can become oversensitive, like light might be blinding to you, or ordinary touch can feel painful to you. The same can be true of a person's conscience. It becomes too hypersensitized. And I think this often is the case of someone who's lived within a religious upbringing where there are all kinds of rules that were not God's rules, not God's law, but over and above. And we become guilty about everything. 
and it can distort your sense of what is right. It's also true, by the way, outside of the religious context. You know, one of the great strange realities of the world in which we live, a secular world, is that even though we cast, we've cast off the law of God over us, we're more moral than ever in certain respects. This is a truly moralistic age, a pharisaical age, in which judgment is quickly offered and condemnation doled out all the time. And you can be vulnerable to that, feeling guilty about things that you aren't guilty for. But more commonly, I think, although there is a reality of false guilt, more commonly, I think, this situation develops where a person has been forgiven. The Bible says your sin can be taken off of you, removed from you as far as the east is from the west, so that you are no longer objectively guilty of the things that you've done wrong. But you can continue to walk with a sense of the psychological guilt that is a torment to our souls. This is a common affliction for Christians. And it's, it's a tragic one also because it robs you not only of joy, it robs you of liberty to fully live the life that God has given you, and it robs you of spiritual power. When a believer walks with a constant sense of heaviness and of guilt, even though the Bible says, I've taken your sins off you, it's very crushing and tragic. And this psalm speaks to this situation. It speaks, of course, to the person who feels guilty and is guilty. And it speaks, of course, here to the person who feels guilty, even though they've already been forgiven. And I think here about the second half of the psalm, which is all about God lifting guilt off of us. He says in verse 4, but with you, there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in his word, I hope. He's turned to optimism, hasn't he? He's turned to strong sense of certainty that this is going to be remedied. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning, more than watchmen wait for the morning. It's a wonderful analogy because what he's describing there is how the watches of the night, there were typically four watches in the night that would take place throughout the dark hours. And the person who was on the final watch was waiting with eager joy and expectation for the first hint of the sun coming up over the horizon, which would signal the end of danger and the beginning of rest for them as they go off shift. And the psalmist is saying, he's describing here the way in which, what is really God's heart for you, which is that you should not walk through life when you've come to him in repentance as the psalm the psalmist here does you must not walk through life continually under a burden of guilt but you are to like the watchman wait for the light to bear the gospel the warmth of the grace of God the love of God to bear on your heart and to bring you out of the pit in which you have sunk and I think it underlines for us this reality that it's not just important that we are forgiven objectively that is the most important thing that there is nothing that can be held against you so that you will not be judged eternally. I think that is the most important thing in life, full stop. But what is also important is that you know the reality of walking into freedom of conscience. This is, the, this is actually a unique aspect of the Christian faith. Every other religion will keep you guessing. Christianity doesn't do that. 
Every person who comes to Christ in repentance is led to this place of total freedom, this total assurance that God loves you and that he does not hold your sin against you, no matter what. How do we feel this sense of peace? And it brings me to the last type of person. Someone who has neither objective guilt nor psychological guilt. And we know that that can only describe one person who has ever lived, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. Now the psalm doesn't mention him, written as it was hundreds of years before he came, but it does hint prophetically to the reality of his coming. When it tells us in the last verses, O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. He's talking about a future moment, an act of redemption of the living God. And it leads us to this man, the Lord Jesus Christ, who alone of all people who have ever lived, lived this perfect life that did not commit sin, that was pure and holy and righteous. We live in a day and age in which it seems every, every great person we know has some dark secret which is just waiting to come to light. We've had the, the great sadness in recent months of some very prominent Christians being exposed in later life for the, the wicked things that they had been doing. There's one sense in which it makes me feel sad. There's another sense in which it makes me feel like a deeper more abiding love for the Lord Jesus Christ because he is the only one. He's the only one who's never sinned. And therefore he doesn't and has never experienced guilt in that psychological sense. It is an experience that's alien to him. And that is why his coming was so important. The Bible says that sin has to be punished. So how is forgiveness available? Through the crushing of the perfect Lamb of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, on your behalf and in your place. Did you notice that strange thing he says in verse 4? He says, with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Think about that for a second. You think there's a bit of a puzzle there, isn't there? What does he mean? There's forgiveness that you may be feared. We tend to think that someone who offers forgiveness is the one you don't fear. It's the person who withholds forgiveness that you fear. I think it only makes sense when you understand the justice of God. That forgiveness always comes at a cost. And that for the forgiveness of God to be extended to you and me as guilty sinners, the great wrath of God that that causes fear had to fall upon his own son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And now the Bible says... He gifts you his righteousness so that you are no longer objectively guilty and need no longer carry the psychological guilt within your conscience that causes torment. Brothers and sisters, this psalm is leading us and inviting us to experience the light of the gospel in a fresh way today. And all the different descriptions that I've been offering you today may describe different ones of you. 
But wherever you are right now, where we all need to be is the same place. It's that place of being before the throne, forgiven and without shame, in a state of repentance and of receiving the love of God. God is binding us up and healing us as he draws us back together as his people. Will you bow your heads with me? Out of the depths I cry to you. Father, I want to pray on behalf of our church family and those who are journeying towards you. That whether that is true to experience and our emotions that we feel to be in the depths or whether it's just true to reality that we're far from you. I pray, Father, that each of us would experience today the sweetness of drawing near to you, of knowing with this psalm that with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Of knowing what it is to wait on you until the dawn of your love, the dawning of your grace shines upon our hearts in a fresh way. And Lord, I pray, I plead with you, Lord, that the Spirit will move among us to bring about true repentance and true forgiveness and the lifting of hearts. I pray you'll take us from darkness to light, from heaviness to lightness and joy. And I ask it in the name of your Son and our Savior. Amen. I want to invite Joel to come and lead us in a response of worship now. I think it would be appropriate just to remain seated as the band sing over us. And it may be the case that for some of you, you feel that you need to take on board the things that are being spoken of here and very deliberately and consciously approach God and even taking this psalm on your lips as a prayer of repentance. And I want to encourage you to do so here and now. If you want to talk with us, pray with us, please grab one of the elders afterwards. We'd be glad to do so. But friend, don't leave this place not having had dealings with Christ. Let's worship together.